I'll just take a couple minutes as way of reminder where we've been in the two weeks that we've looked at God's promise and covenant. We haven't necessarily got to the covenant yet, but more or less God's promise to Abraham, uh, who's actually still Abram uh, at this time. Um, so just a recap, God desiring to do a work to create a nation to bless the world, to bless creation, uh, to bring about his kingdom, calls a man out of idolatry, Abram. Abram was not seeking after this kingdom. He was not seeking after Yahweh, but he was actually in his homeland with his family, worshiping idols. And God's grace came upon him and called him to a land that he did not know, to a land that he would show him. He promised he would make him a great nation. He would bless him. He would make his name great. He would bless those who blessed him and curse those who cursed him. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed through this man and his family. Uh, God called him. Abraham in faith followed. They make it to this, Can- uh, this promised land, Canaan, and they keep going. They made their way down to Egypt where we see in Egypt, we didn't really go over it, we see Abram's sinfulness uh, as he lied to the people in Egypt about uh, Sarah, his wife, not being his wife. Um, then in 13... We see Abram and his nephew Lot who went with him uh, when God called him. And they split up after they came back from Egypt to Canaan. And at that moment in verse 14, God promised Abram a little bit more. He kind of made clear what the promise was that he would give him all this land that he could see. And that all this land he would give to his offspring. But a word he used that he had not used yet was forever. He would give it to his offspring forever. So that was sort of a, a twist, you would say, that kind of that, that, that was tacked on there to help us to understand more. And then he also said that his offspring would cover the would, would be as the dust of the earth. Um, that if one could count the dust of the earth, you could also count the offspring of Abram. And one important thing that we talked about two weeks ago, I believe, when we did this, is that when we look at covenant, uh, we look at covenants in the Old Testament, we can't, and we saw it a little bit this morning, actually, in Isaiah 7. When, When we think about covenants, we can't just think about physical and immediate, but we have to think about spiritual and long term, ultimate, eternal forever, right? So we saw that a bit this morning when we had the sign that God gave to, um, to basically Israel and said, uh, the sign is a virgin gives birth to a, to a son and his name will be Emmanuel. 
Well, that did not, that was not fulfilled in the immediate. We know it as of Christ. And we know that that was not going to happen, but take place hundreds of years later. But then at the same time, almost rolling through that, there was an immediate prophecy that was going to happen. That was in uh, Isaiah's son. And so there you see this mingling, this mixture in this prophecy of an immediate but then an ultimate fulfillment, an eternal fulfillment. And we have to, we have to take that into account as we read through all these covenants. Abraham, David, um, Noah, and even the, the uh, covenant to Adam. So let's look at verse or chapter 15 is where we are. And if you look at your heading in this chapter, it does actually say God's covenant with Abram. And we'll actually see more of this. We won't get to it today, but we'll see more of the, uh, the sort of an explanation of the covenant. It continues to build over the next five to six chapters. But let's look at 15. And we're just going to walk through it verse by verse and see how far we can get. So 15 verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram, still calling him Abram, in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Okay, so fear not. Uh, Aiden, if I said, come follow me, I'm going to take you to a place you don't know, and I'm going to do a lot of good things for you through... Um, but you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to uh, drive in your car to all these places, okay? But then I say, go, and you're like, okay, I don't have a car, right? You don't have a car, do you? <coughs> but you, but you have to have a car. You've got to get in the car to go to this place, or you can't get there. You can only get there by car, and then I leave you alone. And you still don't have a car. But you have to go to this place, Aiden. You've got to go. Okay? But I promise you, you're going to have to go in your car. Where's your car? You don't have it yet, right? So you start to get a little worried. You've told me to go somewhere. You've told me you're going to do something. You told me it was going to be in a car, but I haven't given you a car yet. So you might start to get a little concerned about what I'm talking to you about. It's kind of what's going on with as a probably a pretty bad example. But the idea is is that God had he had completely wrecked Abram's life into this extent, not in a bad way, but this he let he said, "Come on, you got to leave your hometown. You got to leave your family. Yeah, you can bring your uh you can bring your nephew, but he's going to make some bad choices." But he left everything. And he left not knowing. But one thing we, we do know is, and we saw it in 12 and we'll see it in 15 here in a minute, that even in the unknown, there's an act of faith. But even in the act of faith, don't we um, wrestle with fear when we're in the unknown? So God said, I'm going to do these things for you. I'm going to make you a great nation but there was something that was missing in verse 2. Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, 
and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. So, God promised Abram a great nation out of him. And he turns to God and says, You haven't given me the car yet. I don't, you haven't given me a son. How are you going to fulfill your promise if I don't have what I need in order for you to fulfill that? Now, that would be a bad way of thinking about it. I don't have what I need in order for you, God, to fulfill your promise to me. What, do we, what, what can we do? What can we provide? What can we have for God to have to... Let me restate that. There's nothing that we have that God needs for Him to fulfill His promise. If He says He'll do it, and we're looking around and we're like, I don't know how He's going to do it. That's okay. But that's why He says, fear not. Fear not. And He reminds him, He goes, I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. Now, I want to spend just a couple minutes on those Forward, a few words. Your reward shall be very great. Now, we can, we can speculate um, how excited Abram would be to be a, not just a father of many nations, but a father in general. That is a great thing. Um, to have his name be great as God has promised. To be able to bless people. Those are, those are wonderful things. But my question and my thought is, this great, very great reward, I wonder if God was thinking about the physical and the immediate or the spiritual and the eternal. Was the very great reward just the fact that He was going to have a son that he was going to have a family that could not be counted, it would be so much, that he was going to have a land or that his family would possess a land, or, or could it have been something more? Could it have been something spiritual and eternal? And to be honest, it was probably a mixture of both. But I want us to read, and I know we read this maybe the first or second week that we started this. I want us to reread a portion out of Hebrews 11. And it gives us an understanding of what Abram was expecting. Hebrews 11. We go all the way to the back. We get to James or Peter or Revelation. You've gone too far. Hebrews 11. So this is always a good passage to keep in mind to help us to understand what was going on in Genesis in the sight of God and in the mind of Abram. Starting in verse 8. Hebrews 11 starting in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. Fear not, remember? 
By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Look at that. They have not received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Now, I want to, I want to think that the reward, the very great reward that God had in mind here is what Abraham was looking for in Hebrews 11. Something built by God. Something that lasted forever. Something that uh, could never fail, could never falter, never diminish, but a place prepared by God Himself as the designer and builder. Which brings us to what can come to be known as uh, living for this life. You know, we have we have the we have the opportunity to get stuck in looking to how can God fulfill his promises to me in this life and thinking hmm it would be good to be healthy it'd be good to have kids it'd be good for my marriage to last it'd be it'd be good for all of these things to happen but in the ultimate sense all of those things fall away all of those things go away We can all count our blessings from the things that we've received from God while we live. But if we're not looking for that very great reward, that that place, that city where God resides, where He will reside for eternity, if our end isn't that, then we have received all of these blessings. We've received all of these things in vain. Um, And what good is it to have a great marriage if your marriage isn't founded on Christ. If your marriage isn't looking together towards that great city designed and built by God. What good is it to have a successful career? And what good is it to have any of these things if in the end we do not have Christ? Which is what it is the ultimate fulfillment of God's covenant with Abram. We see it in Matthew 1.1, right? We see that, that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the son of Abraham. Why tell us that in Matthew 1.1 if that wasn't the point, the purpose for God's covenant with Abraham? 
the offspring, the offspring of Abraham. So we'll, we'll see more of that as we go along. That was just kind of a, a side note, a long one there, actually. Um, okay, back to verse 2 of chapter 15. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And I'll just remind you, I think the last time we, we were together, we looked at Revelation 5 or 6, maybe 7. When John, he hears of the 144,000 and then he turns and he sees a multitude that cannot be counted, right? If you could number the stars, so then you can number your offspring, you could count your offspring. Again, we're, we're thinking about this, not just in the immediate, but also in the ultimate fulfillment in Christ and the kingdom of God. Um, but then if, if I stopped and we talked about verse six, we'd be here forever. Verse six is, um, such an important verse as there are chapters written about this by Paul, that Abraham was counted as righteousness or as righteous by faith, by faith. So the question always arises, how were they saved in the Old Testament? And the question is, by faith. They had, Abraham, Abraham didn't have the law here. That didn't come until uh, Exodus 20, after they'd left Egypt. Uh, God gives them the law, tells them this is how they ought to live. And even in giving them the law and telling them this is how you ought to live, and making a covenant with them, if you obey, I will bless you. The only way to be justified before God to be and just that's a fancy way of being saved is through faith. Is through faith. Israelites were saved by faith because guess what? If not, if they were not saved by faith, what is the other option? Their own works. And if your works get you to heaven, if your works justify you before God, then you are saying you are good enough within yourself to stand in the presence of God. And so we, we, can't, we can't, just because Christ came and the new covenant comes thousands of years later after this, we always have to remember that God saved the same way. And it was all based on Christ, actually. We could see this in Romans 3. Again, I said this, we could talk about justification by faith for days. But that it is such an important point that Paul will make multiple times. Um, God operates ultimately the same, but we see it differently in Genesis, or we see it differently in the Old Testament as we would in the New. More is revealed in the New Testament. 
but yet they knew they were putting their faith in something they could not see. All that is the case for all saints in the Old Testament. And we also have to understand as we're on as I'm on this point, Abraham, we call ourselves the church, right? We call ourselves the body of Christ. Those that's terminology that comes in the New Testament in the writing to uh, the churches. Abraham is a member of that church. He's a member of the body of Christ. There, there is no, there is no. These are Old Testament saints, and now we have this church of New Testament saints. He is same, uh, saved by the same God through the same faith. And his sins, Abraham's sins, do you know who paid for them? Jesus. Thousands and thousands of years later, Abraham's sins were paid by Christ. Uh, and that's, that's in Romans 3. Okay, so how could he... That's, it's like saying, he was a, an idolatrous man before this happened, right? So he owed God his life forever. Abram owed his life to God forever because he had worshipped false gods. So how could, how could God say, Abram, you are counted as righteous because Jesus paid for his sins. And because even Jesus' righteousness that he earned was also put on Christ, counted as righteous, the same way it is through us. The same way it is to us. Okay, verse 7. And if you want to read more about that, there, uh, the end towards the middle of Romans 3, uh, around verse 20 through 26, you see, that, um, you see that very thing. But you can make a note and check that out this week. So verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from uh, Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to, to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these things. He cut them. Abram cut them in half, and he laid each half over against the other. And then he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses... Abram drove them away. So, quickly, why this cutting of animals? Why did he take uh, this heifer, this goat, these, um, this ram, and uh, he didn't cut the doves? But why did he cut these animals? Well, God is making a covenant with Abram at this time. God is saying, okay, we'll stop for a second. What's a covenant? It's an agreement between people that says, I'll do this and you'll do this, basically. It's like we're both making a promise. And it, it, it's an agreement. We'll just keep it that simple. God is about to make an, a covenant with Abram. But the way they used to do this is they would cut animals into pieces. And that was to signify what would happen if someone broke the covenant. If I break... Okay, Braxton, we're going to make a covenant. 
and you see, and we cut off this we cut this heifer in half. And I say, if I break my part of the covenant, this very thing should happen to me. It was like a way of saying, this is serious business. Covenants, our word, is serious business. And if I am not faithful to my side of the covenant, may this happen to me. May I die, basically. So keep that in mind. Now let's walk through what happens. Verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Alright, you got to keep that in mind too. He's out. He's out. A deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and grateful darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Can anybody tell me what he's talking about? Listen, Layla. God tells Abram, your offspring, your family will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Egypt, right? God is, God is speaking to Abram what is in store for Israel. Because Abram said, how am I know we're going to possess this land? And God is, is speaking to Abram in this deep sleep. And he's like, hang on a second. First, your, your family will sojourn in a land that's not theirs. They'll be servants and they'll be afflicted. It'll be 400 years. That's how long they were in Egypt. They were in Egypt for 400 years. And we can look at the end of Genesis and see this, but we won't to save time. All right, then verse 14. But, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. How did God bring judgment upon the nation of Egypt? He did it 10 times, boys. Plagues. I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterwards they shall come out. Israel, your offspring, your, this nation will come out with great possessions. Do you know what happened right before the, the tenth plague? God told uh, Moses to tell the people, when this goes down, right before we leave, you go and talk to your Egyptian neighbor and they will give you their treasures. They will give you your stuff, their stuff. And you will walk out of this nation. You will walk out of Egypt with wealth. And that's exactly what happened. So he's 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 prophesying God is telling Mo or Abraham what's going to happen. Now look in verse 15. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. So he's saying, you're not going to have to worry about this affliction stuff. You're not going to have to worry about this servant stuff. You're going to die in good old age. You're going to be uh, buried in peace. Verse 16, and they shall come back here. So he's kind of fast forwarding again. And they shall come back here to Canaan in the fourth generation. Now here's a very interesting statement. For the iniquity 
of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, I think I spoke of it this morning. Do you know what happened to the people in, the, in Canaan when Israel was brought back by God after they left Egypt? What happened in those cities? God brought them down. He brought them to destruction. And it was His judgment upon them in Jericho and Ai and these other cities. God did not... I, I don't know if you know, but all these, all these cities that the Israelites came upon after coming back after 400 years of affliction, they destroyed the people in those cities. And they were told by God to do it. Now you've got to take that in one of two ways. Either God is wicked or He's just. And those people were wicked. You've got to think through these things. I mean, we know the answer. We know the answer. That God was just in all that He did in those cities. Think about it. He didn't owe Israel nothing. He didn't have to do anything for Israel. What happened before Abram? People were trying to build a tower to God. And he's like, no. Not. And what happened before that? What happened before that? He killed them all. In the flood. Because what? Every intention and thought within man was evil. And it had not changed post-flood. And so when God says, I'm going to give you this land, and then this kind of sideways approach, He says, but you're going to have to wait for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. My wrath is not yet full. I don't know how or why, but that's what He's, that's what he's getting at. That when I bring them back, your conquering of these places will be my judgment upon these places. And here's the weird part. And we're probably, if we stay in Isaiah long enough, we're going to get into it. Here's the awkward part. God actually reverses that at some point. And He uses the nations around Israel to punish Israel. Righteously. And then you know what He does to those nations? He judges them. This is all based on one thing. God's holiness. God's just holiness. No one can say, God, that is not fair. Because what is fair is that they were all wiped out. Israel, Jericho, the Amorites, all of them. Us. That's fairness. Why? As, we said, as you said with God and Ahaz, who would expect God to owe Ahaz anything? He didn't. The only thing he did owe him was condemnation. And he spared him for a bit. So this, these are tough things that we have to think about and things that we have to be able to communicate in conversations with unbelievers who look back at the Old Testament and go, your God's just an angry God. Blah, 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 blah. Look, from our, from, from our perspective as human beings, we probably think that. But when we have to take a step back 
and approach God for how, who and how He really is. No one like Him. Creator of all things. Who has known the mind of God? Who has counseled Him? Who has given Him a gift that He ever has had to repay? When we approach God in a way that He is completely holy and completely righteous, He can do whatever He wants. Paul says, does not the potter have right over the clay to do whatever with the clay that he wants? Yeah, it's clay, exactly. And he's the one who forms it. He's the one that shapes it and molds it for his purposes. So God's working that out. You know, he's, he's, he's telling Abram this. So the sun had gone down and Abram fell asleep. So verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, so we're talking within moments, you know, I don't know how long, Abram's still out, assuming he's still out because he, he fell asleep when the sun was going down and the sun had gone down and it was dark. Now this is where it just really gets so awesome. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flame, I'm sorry, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Okay, so remember, these pieces, these animals were cut in half and they, they were split to make like an, an aisle. And so what would happen is when this covenant was made between two people, they would walk through it together, Right? When they would make a covenant, they would walk through the cut pieces together saying, this is our promise to one another. And if we don't keep our promise, if we don't keep our side of the, uh, the covenant, may this happen to us. While Abram was asleep, God passed through the pieces. You see that? Abram, he was not a part of that covenant. He was out like a light. God passed through the pieces. He was the only, he's the only one who could keep a covenant. But here's the funny part. I don't, I don't know why I use that word. Here's the irony of it all. Here's the beauty of it all. God kept that covenant. Abraham didn't. His sons didn't. His son's sons didn't. David didn't. You and I can't keep that covenant. But what happened? Who got cut? Christ. We broke the covenant. God himself took our punishment. Took our death. He didn't he didn't hold Abram. He knew it. He's like, God knew there was no way a man can keep a covenant with God. Not possible. So he kept the covenant himself. And then, rock of ages, cleft for me. That word cleft, I know I've said this before, that word cleft in that song means cut. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. God was the only one to be able to keep that covenant. We, the people, could not keep it. 
We deserved to die. But God sent His Son to die in our place. See, this isn't just about a nation and a land. This is about the, his, the, the redemptive history of God creating a people through the crucified Christ. The nations will be blessed through your offspring. And his offspring was Jesus. And that is, this is the formation, beginning, the, the snowball that is rolling of God's working out salvation for his people, for his creation, for the bringing of his kingdom together. And it's all based on God's word. His, and I don't mean word as in his Bible. I mean in God's word, like in he gave his word. He gave his promise. He kept it. When we broke it, he took the punishment, the guilt for us breaking it. That is a beautiful thing. And it just continues to unroll and unfold when we get into David and see how much more beautiful it is. And it just, when we read the Old Testament, you've got to keep these things in mind when we read the Old Testament. When we see how Israel cannot keep what God has told them to do, how they keep stumbling and falling, we're always thinking forward. We get that grace. We get that grace to know that there is a second half, that there is a new covenant, that Christ did come. So we always approach the Old Testament with this in the back of our mind. We read the Old Testament with the New Testament in mind, not the other way around. If we did that the other way around, we'd get the New Testament wrong. We'd get it confused. We read the Old Testament in light of the New. Because, because what Jesus said, the prophets and Moses were writing about me. That's what Jesus said. So we have to always come back when we're reading the Old Testament to always consider the New. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer.